Shrink Wrap Radio number 856, UK writer Tim Lott reflects on Alan Watts' mental health and consciousness. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrink Wrap Radio. Radio. All the psychology you need to know and just enough to make it dangerous. It's all in your head. And now here's your host, Dr. Dave. My London associate and blogger, Isabella Clark, steps in to conduct yet another interview. I really treasure Issy, and I hope you do too. She's an Oxford grad and a professional broadcaster. She reads widely in areas I don't cover. Consequently, she brings us high-quality guests I would not have known about. Now, here's Issy with her latest find. Hi, this is Izzy Clark. My interviewee this time is a novelist, and I'm not interviewing him because his novels specifically address psychotherapy, but because of his philosophy of life. I hope this will become clearer in the conversation that follows, but I'll try to set it up here. Tim Lott is an English author. He's written a memoir which recounts his mother's suicide and his own breakdown, as well as ten novels. I had read one of them, Rumours of a Hurricane, when it came out and thought it excellent. So when I saw Tim's name on an Eon article, I had a read. The piece was about Alan Watts and explains how an understanding of Zen through the lens of Watts impacted Tim's life. What fascinated me was the importance, for some of us at any rate, of working towards our own philosophy of life. I wanted to talk to him to see how much it mattered to him to know what to make of this wild and wonderful life. So, This isn't a psychologist, a therapist, a medic or a coach, but I think there's a lot to ruminate over and consider that's relevant to the core themes of Shrink Wrap Radio. Oh, and there's a tiny bit of fruity language in there as well. It might be the first time there's been an E for explicit on this podcast, but honestly, it's only three words, so don't be put off. Now, here's the interview. Tim Lott, welcome to Shrink Wrap Radio. Thank you. So we're we're going to be talking um, primarily about your experiences of Zen meditation or the Zen philosophy, really, um, particularly in the flavour of of Alan Watts. But I wanted to start by getting a sense of why it formed such an important part of your life at a particular time. So I think we need to go through a little bit of your bio- biography and and understand what you felt you needed when you um when you became particularly engaged with um with his thinking. Okay, well, um I didn't discover Alan Watts until I was in my 30s. Um 
I, at that point, I had had a nervous breakdown, which I had when I was in my early 30s. Subsequently, I wrote a memoir about that breakdown. Uh, uh, not purely about that. It was also about my mother and growing up as a working class boy in London and class, um, as well as mental illness. But as part of that journey, I became friends in my researches with a woman called Dorothy Rowe, um, who uh, seems to be largely forgotten nowadays, but was a, a wonderful, wise woman, and we became close friends. Um, and she pointed me in the direction of Alan Watts. Um, Dorothy Rowe, who some people might have heard of, was actually a kind of uh, Buddhist, though she was kind of horrified to be described as such because, you know, as she used to say herself, I don't go around sticking gold flakes on the Buddha. I mean, she's just had a Buddhistic philosophy of life. And I didn't really understand what she meant by that. Um, but she told me to go and read Alan Watts. And um, then I did start reading him and I sort of became... Uh, I don't know if obsessed is, is that's a bit of a sort of mental health word, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, but I became fascinated by Alan Watts and um, I thought he had all the answers really to things that had troubled me ever since I was a teenager. And he explained so much about being alive on this planet, which for me had been a torturous puzzle. Um, and nobody seemed to talk about the things that bothered me. What bothered me, question mark? Well, I, I suppose it was that nothing seemed to make any sense, was what yeah. bothered me. Um, and uh, and yet everybody walked around as if it did. And everyone sort of seemed absolutely sure of themselves and what they knew and what they thought. Whereas I just used to think, well, how can you be so sure? You know, and everybody thinks everything different so what makes you think you're right um and that's always been something that's tormented me it's like who gives me the the, the pride of the capital p to say i'm right so alan watts after i had my breakdown which was connected in a way with not having a sense of place or, or a philosophy and to fall back on in some ways because I was a classic product of modernity, I suppose, uprooted, atomistic, pleasure-seeking, lost in the moment, not having any particular personal philosophy, not religious, just drifting from one moment to the next and sort of blundering around, really. And I didn't like that feeling. I, I wanted a feeling of some kind of philosophy that I could believe in or at least not find ridiculous and most philosophies i found fairly incoherent i suppose um and certainly religions so anyway on reading alan watts i sort of i mean alan watts if i can you know you came along at the end of a quite a fair list of people who i had been reading to try and get a sense of what was going on in my own mind and in the world who else um, did you read Rollo May. Uh -huh. um, I read The Existential Psychologist, mm -hmm. Joseph Campbell, Jung. Um, I was very fascinated. I'm a storyteller. I'm a novelist by trade. 
So, um, you know, I'm very interested in stories and therefore I couldn't help but be fascinated by the Joseph Campbell interpretation of storytelling and and the mythic structures that were embedded in all human Mm. cultures. And that struck me as fascinating. Um, So Jung and and Joseph Campbell, I, I, I listened to this TV series called the power of myth that was shown on American TV when I was living in America for a few months. Um, um, and that that was interviews with Joseph Campbell. Um, and uh, that was terrific. It really excited me. And every now and again, you know, I come across a thinker that really speaks to me. Not that often. You know, most thinkers, I go, mm, yeah, mm, I sort of, you know, kind of get it, but I don't really get it. Um, but um, Alan Watts seemed to tick all the boxes, and still does. I think he's a remarkable figure and, and an amazing man. Um, and I wish I'd met him. Um, and uh, you know, I'm very grateful to him because what I liked about Alan Watts, I don't know, we haven't ever talked about Alan Watts and who he was. Um, but what I loved about him was that he was a kind of, he was very English in that, and by that I meant he had a sense of humour about himself, unlike yeah. most gurus. Yeah, definitely. Uh, he had a wonderful laugh. He, he liked um, he liked things of the flesh, you know, sex and drugs and rock and roll was all ticks for, as far as he was concerned. <laughs> um, he was, you know, as far away from being ascetic as you could imagine. And he was just a very, and he was very flawed. He was a drunk. He was, you know, he was a lousy father. He was married three times to other drunks. I mean, you know, he was really a, he was not what you would call a saintly figure. And that attracted to me, me to him even more because as he often said, you know, you should never, there's nothing more dangerous than a saint, which I kind of agree with really. Mm. Uh, you know, I like, I like flawed individuals um, because I think, because we're all flawed, and anybody who pretends they're not has got their head screwed on wrong, you know. And uh, I do think this sort of acceptance of our central crooked timber is one of the things that I find very reassuring about Alan Watts. He's very forgiving in his philosophy. He's very accepting of who we are, you know, and he's not in any way pious or moralistic. And, you know, he he celebrates life and joy. And, you know, that's that's what I call a philosopher, not sort of, you know, not Kierkegaard or Plato sitting there, you know, philosophizing themselves to death. I mean, you know, just um, just people who have some joie de vivre, which he absolutely did. Um, just before we go, go into his um, his thinking and the things that particularly inspired you, um, you you I hope you don't mind. But in an in an article you wrote for the Guardian, um, you do go through the difficulties of your life, and they they and you know they they were not inconsiderable. I mean your mother's your mother's death by suicide, um, being bullied as a child. I mean they're 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 challenging things for for anyone to deal with. And at the particular time of your breakdown, I think in the article you mentioned that three three people very close to you had recently had recently died as well. So this was a this was a sort of a cataclysmic time on top of um, on top of a life that had already had it had sufficient hardship really. 
I suppose so. I mean, I don't wouldn't overstress that. I mean, it it depends on how you look at it, doesn't it? I mean, you know, I my, I had loving parents. Um, I had a stable home. Mm. Uh, I you know, I was enough food on the table. Um, I was bored out of my mind, but I mean, you know, I wasn't actually. When I read about some of the things that children go through when they're growing up, I mean, I think I was fairly likely unlucky i mean yeah i you know my big brother was a bit of a effer towards me though i'm very close to him now and i love him very much but at that time we really didn't get on at all um and i was born with cancer and that was not good um and i i was operated on as a three-day-old baby without anesthetic as far well as i can make out yeah they would have then yeah it would have been without anesthetic. Yeah. so yeah. god knows what had effect that had on me um, but you know, shit happens to everybody. I, I, I'm, I'm, just, I'm not trying to downplay it, but I mean, I'm, I'm simply saying that, okay. you know, I, I, I didn't have a sort of spectacularly. Well, you know, as I say, I read stories about people who are used by their grandfathers and buggered by the scoutmaster or whatever. I mean, I didn't have any of that really going on, um, which in some ways made 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 being depressed worse because I didn't really have any obvious reason to be depressed at, at, at any point. I mean. As things went, I was okay, um, and I didn't, you know, have anything particularly to complain about. I think I can empathise with that because I, I, I would, um, I would sort of say, I mean, I had, I had some things that were wrong and hard and very challenging, and other things that were, you know, really very positive in in my upbringing, and you know, on the whole, taken in the great scheme of things, hugely fortunate. And when I have um, suffered periods of depression, that has been one of the worst things is not only am I depressed, but I feel like a weak failure as well, because no. there isn't really there isn't really. No, this... that's, one of the, that's one of the hellish things about depression. You, don't have, you know, you often don't have anything in particular to be depressed about. You know, you're just depressed. Mm. That's, and, and so everyone goes, well, what are you so miserable about? You know, you've got things pretty sweet. Thanks a lot. You know, I mean, it's, so that doesn't feel good, you know, because you don't feel you've got any rights to feel unhappy um yeah. and yet you do you feel desperately miserable did it how did it impact your writing because uh, you've you wrote for, i think first the memoir and then um and then subsequently you've been writing novels how did the periods of um you know of either depression or of the positive feelings which we'll get to after um after you'd really fully embraced um the alan watts ideas how did that impact your creativity well, all I can say about that is that depression is not good for creativity. I mean, it's it's it destroys creativity. It was only when I recover from depression I could start being creative because I had the spare energy. You know, when you're depressed, all your energy goes into being depressed. Um, there's nothing nothing left over for defending yourself against whatever you're defending yourself against. Um, so, on the one hand, there's no there's no sense, excuse me, in which depression helped me to be a creative person. On the other hand, being a creative person, particularly as a writer, and I, I read a statistic recently that I mean, there's there's a often repeated trope about creative people that they they go crazy more often than other people, or suffer depression more than other people. Apparently, this this isn't true. Oh. Um, Except in the case of writers, um, oh. uh, 
and novelists who are and i understand why you know it's an extraordinarily isolated introverted cut off kind of world in which you tend to feel quite separate from other people you kind of are slightly outside of everything else uh, and it's quite isolating and you know after all you have to spend a long time in a room by yourself um grappling with something you don't know what to call um grappling to find something you don't know what you're looking for i mean it's very very challenging job i mean i teach creative writing um on substack and you know one of the things i try and press on my students is you know don't mistake don't mistake this for you know a harmless hobby uh, um i mean trying to write anything serious or serious with serious intent doesn't have to be serious i mean i, I try and be funny in my novels if I can be um but you know is is no joke I mean it, it's um it's a attempt to master imaginatively the world and that's something most of us don't ever do because we're too busy putting food on the table going to work planning our holiday and building the kitchen extension Novelists just sit there thinking, what the hell's going on? You know, it's a bit like being a philosopher, only we're not quite as clever as philosophers. Um, but I like to think we're sometimes wiser. I wondered, this is this is somewhat tangential, but um, just thinking about it, I've I've done some creative writing courses and written some, you know, fairly dreadful poetry and really dreadful prose. But um, one long piece that I wrote, um, and and I remember sort of the, I remember two things. One that it that it did seem to have its own guiding principle of what happened. That there and when it when it wasn't happening, I couldn't make it. It 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 guided itself. But the other thing about it being so all encompassing that all of the time this world and these characters were you know around me. And I wonder, you know, if you're actually if you're actually quite good at it, and it is really your job, not just something you're doing to, you know, as a as a exploration. If that if that sort of changes your experience of kind of consciousness and day to day living in some sense, because you're almost inhabiting two worlds simultaneously. Maybe I mean, when I read back some of my novels, which I really do, but occasionally I have to, um, because, well, I, for instance, uh, a couple of weeks ago, some TV company wanted to buy the rights to one of my novels, and I couldn't remember the hell what the novel was about. So I had to go back and read it again. Um, and, uh, and on the occasions I've done it, I think, whoever's writing, whoever's, whoever's written this novel is much cleverer than I am. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and, and, uh, and I genuinely feel that you know that 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 that's almost someone else writes the novels, that they are of a you know they are of a caliber that is quite beyond my everyday communication and intellectual skills, and it, I, it's almost like entering a a trance state. Yeah, a demon. It's do. like a. It's like a demon. Was it? Was it Plato or Socrates? One of them talks about the demon having the demon as, and some people translate it as kind of soul or something. But but it makes me think of that. 
yeah, da- Damon, I think. D-A- yeah, D-A-M-O-N. yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's it's you know the 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 more I live and write and think, the less of a the less of a materialist I am. Um, you know, and I certainly. I I believe in demons, you know. I believe in gods and demons, and I believe in a spiritual universe without a doubt. You know, I'm no longer what I was most of my life, which was like, uh, well, if you can't uh, if you can't measure it, it doesn't exist. Which struck me as one of those stupid precepts for life as I can possibly imagine. I mean, the whole scientific mindset is absurd as far as as I. I because you're told that it's like the only way of thinking and everything else is is woo-woo. Actually, you know, the scientific way of thinking is unbelievably narrow-minded. Um, so I've become, you know, as I say, I'm not a materialist. I believe in gods and demons. I believe that those demons and gods are within you and within your, your unconscious. And what we call it the unconscious, but it used to be called God. It used to be called the gods. Um uh, and uh, you can't deny it. You know, if you close your eyes, there are these little images and words are popping into your head. Where the hell do they come from? I don't know. Yeah. You know, nobody knows. And suddenly this this consciousness is here. What is this consciousness? So again, science has got no idea what the hell consciousness is. They like to play it, pretend they do. They've got no idea what consciousness is. And, uh, you know, so my starting point for everything is I am conscious. And I am here. And everything else follows from that. I think it's called phenomenology. Um, but I think it's the idea that the, the most fundamental form of reality is the fact that you're conscious. And that is not a material thing. Mm. Thinking, imagining is not a material process. There's a wonderful book called The Mark by Morris Nichol, in which he talks about that the life is uh, interaction between the visible and invisible. And um, what we don't, or what we forget or don't realise is that, that human beings are invisible. They are completely invisible. You know, of course, I can see your eyes and flesh and face, but yourself is entirely invisible to me. Um, it's within your consciousness. You are an invisible person, and I am an invisible person. Well, the fact that we we are lunking around these pieces of flesh is neither here nor there. We are fundamental. Everything is is an interaction between the visible world and the invisible world, and the invisible world is absolutely as real as the visible world. It's absolute, if not more real than the bookshelves behind you or the table in front of you. It's real. It's not some kind of as the materialist would have it, some weird bit of steam that's let off as a as a byproduct of epiphenomenalism, yeah, yeah, uh, of of you know the electrochemical processes. I mean, that's pathetic. Um, we we could we could um, foray down this rabbit hole quite a long time because I I have I agree with so much and also would like to would like to sort of ask you about some other things but it it takes us away from the the main subject of this so um if there's time at the end we'll see if we can get back to um to to consciousness because it, it's something that's been discussed on this podcast um quite a bit over the last month um but let's talk about let's go back to to alan watts and his particular flavor of of zen 
And um, and one of the things that you wrote in the article was um, was his view of life having no intrinsic meaning any more than a piece of music has an intrinsic point. Life was, in Zen parlance, yugen, a kind of elevated purposelessness. How did that, um, was that a, a, a consolation for you in feeling, oh, well, it doesn't mean anything? Or did it have some sort of more, a deeper significance in, in bringing a kind of meaning to meaninglessness? Yeah, I mean, let me be completely clear. I don't think life is meaningless. Um, what I think is that we don't know what the meaning is. Okay. Um, and, and I think that the idea, and, and and to use the phrase precisely, the kind of elevated meaninglessness. Um, it's not just, you know, oh, nothing means anything. Um, again, that's plainly absurd. Of course things mean things, you know, everything means something. Um, if I, you know, prod you in the throat, that means that, you know, you're going to be very annoyed with me. I mean, you know, we're surrounded by meanings of love, anger, hate, desire, the gods within us, if you like. Meaning is everywhere. Um, it's unavoidable. So, I, you know, the, the traditional religious attitude was, you know, everything is meaningful. We've now moved to this modern view that nothing has any meaning. And I think, you know, the ancients are far more correct than we are. Um, but what that meaning is... Um, is inexpressible, uh, and uh, and that's something also religious and spiritual teachers have really been saying since the beginning. You know, the Taoists say, you know, the Tao that can be spoken is not the Tao, um, and and even uh, you know, I, I believe that's true of Christianity too. Um, you know that 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 really we cannot say what it is that of which life comprises or means. But that doesn't mean it doesn't mean anything and it doesn't comprise anything. It's just that our language and perceptions are not up to it, basically. You know, if I try, I mean, I spent my whole life trying to work out what life means. And if you said to me, well, what does it mean then, Tim? You know, I mean, it's just like, I don't know. You know, what, what am I going to tell you? I mean, what it means, go and read my 10 novels. That's what it means. You know, that will start you off. You know, go and look at this poem. That'll give that'll give you a clue. But it's all clues. It's all hints. But you can't, in this very sort of mechanistic way, go. Well, it means a this, b this, c this, and d this. It's it's that's again that's part of the crazy mindset that we've got ourselves into. It's it sounds like you're saying in some sense of this is that it's it's kind of emergent. Um, but also going back to phenomenology, um, experiential. I was listening to an interview with Aboriginal. Um, political scientist Mary Graham last night and she was talking about the dreaming and she was saying that one person the one white fella had um, described the the dreaming and he had described it in a way of what it was like and she she appreciated that description and somebody else had had tried to make a representation of it as what it is and she could see that as a kind of reified thing but what it was like 
is something that's entirely different from the reified representation, however accurate that representation may be. Well, when you say reified, can you just, what do you mean by that? um, Something that's made into an object that can be looked at and analysed and... um, and... Ceremonies and rituals? No, that he had described it as if to turn it into the thing that is analysed rather than an experience or an emergent, yeah, Yeah, rather than than what it's like to be in that state. And if you're, the meaning of that state is what it's like to be in that state, not something that you could describe externally. So you could describe externally the sort of the carapace of dreaming, but dreaming incorporates, you know, this this emergent experiential um, lived lived sense, um, lived and emotional and embodied um, qualities that you just that you just couldn't represent. No, and that that, and that sort of, why why I've asked about ritual and ceremony is because in a way, ritual and ceremony and religious ceremony are all attempts to get at that thing that we can't yes. seek words for, but they you know they they're very moving these ceremonies, but we don't know why you know because because words are a very and this is one of the things Alan Watts writes about you know he says that words are an incredibly limited and sketchy. Uh, what's the word? Not lateral exactly, um, but you know, very one-dimensional mm-hmm. way of describing experience. And we've become so obsessed with the way we symbolise meaning through words, as philosophers have. You know, words are incredibly inadequate. I'm a writer, but you know, God knows, words are so inadequate for explaining what is taking place at any time you know reality is is way beyond speaking you know we can sort of hint at it but an image in a film might make a massive impact on us but we might not be able to say why a man nailed to a cross might have a huge amount of impact on us but we may not be able to say why and yet you know that image has taken the western world through two thousand years you know, and somehow that image of the cross and the man now, the crucifixion, has had this incredible, it's enough to build 10,000 churches. What does it mean? What the hell are all those churches doing there? You know, it's a very peculiar thing. And I think life is very mysterious. And so was it was it the sense that um, reading what allowed you to see that um, to be more comfortable with that kind of esoteric, indescribable meaning of life, rather than always seeking a kind of understanding, a symbolic understanding that you could that you could sort of put your finger on or aim towards. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I mean, I think he 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 weaned me off of sort of logical positive, positivism or rationalism. You know, he weaned me away from. He was one. Others came after us, but he weaned me away from the idea. You know, he used to talk about um, pickles and goo. Have you heard about this? Yes, 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 yes. yes I like that. people and gooey people, you know, and the, the, the prickly people go, well, no, the world is exactly like this. And outside of this, there's nothing whatsoever. And the gooey people go, oh, I don't know, man. It's kind of, you know, it's <laughs> I don't know. It's kind of weird. And, and, and he says, you know, the world isn't prickles or goo. It's prickly goo. You know, it's this sort of weird mm. mixture. And, uh, and, 
you know, we're constantly trying to nail that. What I got out of, of what's primarily is like I was trying to nail the world down in my mind. And it wasn't until I read what's understood, you cannot nail the world down because it's like trying to nail water down. You know, life is not quantifiable. It is not describable. It is not what we speak about. The map is not the territory. You know, and he's he's um, he's very good on it on really explaining how. And this is a Zen understanding. You know that that life is. I mean, this is obviously part of Zen discipline is to is to try and experience the world without words or concepts. To say, you know, to sit in a room and just this is it. This is the experience, and I'm not going to comment on it, and I'm not going to form words about it. I'm not even going to form images about it. I'm just going to experience it. And that's being, um, and uh, and that was very powerful for me. The idea that you know what reality was could not actually be nailed down. Um, that was one thing. And also, he's wonderful. He's one my, one of my favorite books of his is the Wisdom of Insecurity, uh, and um, you know which is is got me to understand that there is no security. The whole idea of security is ridiculous. You know, you're, you're, you're seeking uh, the metaphor he uses, which I think was rather wonderful, is, uh, you know, seeking security uh, in life is like, he said, well, you're pushed off a cliff when you're born and holding onto a rock when you're falling is not going to make you any more secure. <laughs> you know? And I thought that's absolutely true. You know, there's it, no security and you're going to die. <laughs> you know, basically, the, the, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what's going on. You don't know who you are. You don't know who the other person is. You haven't got a clue about anything, and you're going to die. That's your life. And so what are you going to do with that? You know, and, <laughs> um, and you know, it's, I mean, it is funny, but it's also terrifying. And people, in an attempt to deny the sheer intractability, the unknowability of things, devise patterns pages if you like within which they they live yeah because they can't bear the sheer unknowability and uncertainty of things and what watts taught me to try and do though he was very against trying watts he didn't believe in trying he believed in allowing things to happen um but uh you know all this oh, i'm gonna do it no he was very against that um uh the idea that you can, I forgot what I was going to say. It was probably oh, very profound. I, I, it was going to be hugely profound. It really was, but it's gone. But that's, <laughs> you know, that's uncertainty for you. Oh, <laughs> it really helps you too. We were on, yeah, we were on insecurity. Maybe this will, maybe this will sort of um, trigger. Insecurity, we were about insecurity. Yes. And, and the idea that, you know, that you could somehow make yourself secure um, by, by, clinging to a creed or a philosophy mm. or a country or a religion um, or a social group. These will all give you a, a false sense of security, but there's no real security. And you it's, said you were saying that it's it, while funny, it's it's there's also it's also terribly frightening. And we try to sort of bulwark ourselves against the against the fear by all of these different methods. And ultimately, all of those different methods are no no use. Well, they can be useful if you can get away with it. You know, but the trouble is sooner or later, reality has a habit of sneaking out behind you and whacking you over the head, you know, and then what do you do? 
Um, you know, I mean, I think a lot of people get away with all kinds of silly belief systems, you know, and it, sometimes, perhaps quite often, it carries them through life. You know, I can't do that. No. I mean, perhaps I wish I could, but but I can't. I find uh, there's something about my mind that is, is always going, nah, I don't know, that doesn't really make sense. You know, and that's not a very comfortable, and uh, it's not a very comfortable thing for other people to be around. I mean, I lost a lot of friends, not by being mean to them, by just going, I don't know why you believe that. You know, or I don't know why you think that. Why do you think that? And that is enough for some of them to absolutely freak out, you know, because they've actually never thought about it. You know, and most people's beliefs are picked up like little motes of fluff on your jumper when you're walking past a static cone. You know, we we think we are, we sold this myth that we're independent individuals but we're not you know we're put together by society by history by media by advertising by a family you know to think independently which i suppose has always been my goal is a very hard goal because you know you are you know you are not only are you made out of other people and other things and other processes but also thinking for yourself although it's much advertise is a good thing in fact most most people don't like it you know they don't like being around people who think for themselves actually um they like to think they do but they don't they like people who think for themselves within a certain very small spectrum of the the agreed assumptions you know i live in a very very stereotypical liberal middle class area of northwest london you know and everybody believes exactly the same thing as far as i can make out you know and they all think they're very individual and brilliant um and they're very they're clever people they're not fools but but actually you know if you sort of say to them well i don't know maybe open borders isn't a great idea you know i mean you, you can have like a hysterical fury coming at you you know it's like uh, whatever you know the fact is there is a certain that, that it's nothing about it being independent and free thinking they are just as tribal as a west ham supporter as far as i'm concerned you know i mean there's no difference and if you uh, raise your voice against the mob and there are clever mobs as well as dumb mobs you know, you're not going to make yourselves very popular. That's why I have no friends and do interviews like this, you know, just to have someone to talk to for a few Oh, years. well, you know, it's nice for me to have someone to talk to. I mean, I have a few <laughs> friends, but, you know, not, not that many. Um, what if the, this is, this is, it kind of aligns with one of the other things that I've drawn out of the, um, the article that, um, you said you wrote that uh, what saw his job via Zen philosophy to teach you to think clearly so that you could see through conventional thinking, as you're saying, to a place where your mind could be at peace inside a culture that could have been designed to generate an anxiety. So do you feel, I mean, 
is your mind it sounds as if your mind was at peace when you went through this initial um this initial period with what um because you you do say in that article that you felt that you you experienced a state of sartori for um enlight and that kind of enlightenment for mm-hmm. um for pretty much a year and and then that sort of faded away so so can you give us a sort of sense of that sort of narrative arc well it's hard to say all i can say is that it it's i feel it very much at the moment i feel very much in the flow i don't worry about anything i don't i sleep well i wake up feeling fine i'm not you know emotionally agitated by anything i feel i take things in my stride um so that's quite close to that you know that ideal state um but you know a couple of months ago i i felt very differently i felt very upset and and, and about something personal and I was not feeling good and I didn't feel at ease and I didn't feel, um, what should we say, equilibrium. Um, nothing dangerous, nothing, you know, that would approach depression or anxiety, but I just didn't feel uh, at ease in the world. Um, and I have a very good, actually a Zen psychotherapist who is a really terrific guy um who who has helped me enormously over the last 10 years um and he had a very simple solution which i have tried before but you know it actually does work uh, he just said well you know you should try meditating um and uh i thought yeah all right i'll get i, mean, I used to meditate and i stopped and I, I started meditating again and bob's your uncle i've been fine ever since you know i mean just by sitting still for you know twice a day 20 minutes is done wonders for me um so you know it's a slightly banal prescription um but along with a lot of other things meditation therapy you know can all reading the right books um can all help um so yeah uh, just lately i felt in a very good um a very good place and on top of being you know i don't know if i've mentioned this or you mentioned it, or my name has mentioned it, but I also was diagnosed with ADHD um, about seven, eight years ago. And that really did explain a lot about my life and the way I, the depressions I suffered and the way I lived my life and the mistakes I'd made in my life. Um, Because, you know, I kind of had this little motor running inside me all the time, but it was just very hard to be still i was always you know mentally active and i i've learned you know that uh meditation is one of the ways you can help compensate for adhd yeah um, t- two things uh there in fact i might have just forgotten one of them but one of the one of the things oh you know Yes, in your article, you did say that um, you you credited the ADHD with leading to some disastrous media appearances. And so I was thinking to myself, well, I wonder what's going to happen here. (laughs) But um, the other other thing was I noticed uh, in the E.ON article, um, which we will link to in the show notes, um that you um that you you wrote that um that alan watts dismissed zazen dismissed the sort of sitting uh, so at the time right right back in back in your initial um exploration of him did you you, you presumably didn't meditate then 
Yeah, a bit. But I mean, it, it's not that Alamos was against meditation. Ah. He just was against Zazen, you know, which he called the aching back school of um, Zoom, Zen, uh, which is like the more you can make your back ache, the better, the more spiritually elevated you were. Um, and and his answer is, well, you know, a cat sits until he's bored and then gets up and walks away. Uh, and, you know, the point about meditation, uh, he says, and he's right, is it's not meant to be a task. You know, you're meant to, it's meant to be a pleasant experience. You know, people go, I've got to go and meditate. You know, the, and you <laughs> see these sort of things that, you know, meditate for higher productivity. It's kind of like, you know, it's kind of missing the point. Um, the point of meditation is that it has no point, you know, and, and, and until you sort of, understand how to live with pointlessness that's what meditation is there for is to make you think there's nothing wrong with just sitting here i'm just sitting here okay got nothing else to say you know and that's and in this culture we live in in which we are constantly urged to go and do things ideally as part of a group to be able to say i'm just sitting here you know is quite a powerful thing i mean so no, Watts was not anti-meditation. He just didn't make a fetish of it. I and see. He made quite a few videos, I think, about meditation and how to meditate. Just suspect he made for money as much as anything else. Um, but but I feel the same. You know, I meditate when I feel like meditating. Um, at the moment, I feel like meditating, so I'm meditating twice a day. But I probably won't. I'll probably stop again. It's not like I'm saying you must meditate. You know. Um, None of that, none of these sort of, you know, cast iron principles hold water for very long. But I have found meditation helpful. You mentioned earlier about the the sort of scientific method having this kind of negative impact on on the way that way that we think, and um, and this idea of this idea of sort of pointlessness um, seems to me to be um, or that that kind of elevated sort of point, pointlessness without the meaninglessness. Um, it, it seems to be kind of aligned with this idea of um, sort of imprecision, of ambiguity, of um, both and rather than, you know, or. Um, and I, I liked that um, one of the, one of the points that, that you brought out was, was what, um, affirmation of the essential connectedness of things and you write uh, we live in an imprecise world nature is extraordinarily vague science promotes the idea of hard clear brute facts but some facts are soft that gets back to the prickly and the gooey i guess um, a cutting up attitude to life gives us dead knowledge not live knowledge and i I, I like that idea of of live knowledge, and I think that um, you know, for a writer as as well, live knowledge surely must be a lot more fruitful to consider than than dead knowledge. Well, to be knowledge, it has to be live. You know, I mean, the moment you grasp it, it, it is dead. You know, in a, in a strange way. I mean, it, this is one of those things. I think is quite hard to describe, but. Um, and you have to get into epistemological discussions about, you know, what it means to to know things, um, which I'm not qualified to do. Um, but I think when I think of times in my life when I've known things at some very deep level, it's definitely not I know that 
e equals mc squared, you know, perhaps that's a kind of sort of deep knowledge. Um, it's some kind of connection with your unconscious mind again, which again, I wouldn't, I would not hesitate to also call God. Um, you know, I mean, uh, I don't believe in a Christian God, but I'm definitely a deist. I mean, I definitely think we are surrounded within and without by something, something, um, you know, and uh, I, I don't know what to call it, but it's there. Of course it's there. It's it's within me and, and it's within you and it's within everything else. I have no doubt about that anymore. Um, uh, so that's, I suppose, what I mean by living knowledge. And, and, and knowledge is, is, is something you kind of have to be, you don't go out and find it. You have to kind of be receptive to it, I think. Yes, that's the word. Open you have to, to be it. Receptive to it. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense to me. When considering the, um, because I think, you know, reading through um, Alan Watts's books and looking at the um, recordings of all those different um, lectures and, um, and so forth that, that, that are on YouTube. And there is a, there is a, there is a vast um, treasure trove of, of that on, on YouTube. When you compare that with, um, with, the impact of having therapy and the impact I think that you've you mentioned in the article medication as well do you think there are um do you think they they all three are equally valuable to you or valuable in different ways for different aspects of you know of of living in in this difficult world therapy medication and Alan Watts yeah three things yeah yeah, that, yeah, that, I mean, and meditation, I suppose. Meditation, medication. Yeah, meditation, medication. Yeah, medication. Um, I yeah, well, you you put your finger on it, and they're all useful in in their different ways. I mean, I think they're all valuable. You know, trying to find, trying to find your way through all the possible ways of thinking about the world, is very hard because. You know, who the hell is Alan Watts? Nobody knows who he is. This, to me, is this spiritual genius. But most people haven't got a clue. You know, ask 100 people in the street where Alan Watts is, they haven't got a clue. You know, I mean, even even amongst intellectuals, so-called, most people don't know who Alan Watts is. You know, it, it, it's it's quite an esoteric niche piece of knowledge, you might say. And, that, and this is always the surprising thing to me because, you know, these quite marginal figures, to me, are very powerful. Dorothy Rowe, another one who's, you know, not really known by anybody, not taken notice of, but it, it's, it, it's not the big names. I mean, Freud, you know, was obviously a genius. Jung, I think, more so. And I, I'm, I've been reading a very good book of, uh, Jung's pretty impenetrable, but I've been reading a book of his, his speeches and essays, and that's really good. And that helps. What's that, which one's that? Uh, it is called Jung Speaks, oh. and uh, it's um, it's all his interviews, all his public lectures, uh, and um, it's quite a rare book. I think I had to pay thirty quid or something, forty quid maybe from America for it. Um, but it's the only book I've read that really has a satisfactory way of explaining what he was going on about which wasn't always very clear um and he certainly impresses me um and of course you know he's he is more like a household name but you know 
Joseph Campbell is somebody who um, is known more now because of mm. his impact on storytelling. I would have to say, controversially, I'm a big fan of early Jordan Peterson. I, I'd, I was as well. I, I, I was, it, I, yeah. Until he went do Lally, I think his early stuff was quite brilliant. And I, I've been watching it again recently, his Maps of Meaning lectures are quite superb, you know, and I, he's, he's to me, one of the most important, well, the most important living thinker, but who's somehow shot himself in the foot by getting involved in these ridiculous cultural arguments, you know, and they, they have, they've torn him to pieces, I think. Um, uh, and I think he's reacted to it by, uh, right, reacted to it by sort of pushing himself further in one direction than he wouldn't, than he would right. naturally have got. Reacted to it very badly, I think. He's, he's. I mean, in a way, I don't. I'm not surprised. I mean, my God, he came in for a sort of beating, you know. And I suppose it was what I said earlier is is that people who speak their own mind, even if they're as charismatic and clever as 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 uh, Jordan Peterson. Um, and do not make themselves popular, you know. And he was, I mean, of course, he had he had many, many acolytes, of which I was one. Um, but um, and I met him many times and and had conversations with him many times and found him a remarkable man. Um, but it's so sad to watch him being, as it were, possessed by demons, if you like, is is, is how he would put it, I think. I mean, I remember asking him in, in an early interview, saying, well, aren't you worried that all this fame and, and attention is going to ruin you? And he said, well, yes, I mean, I, I'm very aware. I'm very careful. You know, I know how this could go to your head. You know, now look where we are, the sort of ranting lunatic on, on YouTube channels. I mean, it's so sad because I think he's he's become exactly the person all his detractors said he was. And I think he was an incredible thinker, you know, and, and he, I think he's just been, he's lost his way. And, and you know, he, he was kind of crucified, I think. Um, and unfairly, I think, very unfairly. But um, but he's ended up in this place of sort of, you know, the the, the hall of villains to, to the um, liberal sensibility of some corners. Um, and... You know, we're in an era of groupthink, uh, and people like Jordan Peterson don't go down very well. But you know, when I listen to him now, which I don't, um, but when I have, I think, well, I can see your point. I'm not talking his point. I mean, the people yeah. who hate him, you know, because I think, yeah, he is a dick. You know, just like and 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 then I think, but he's not. He's a really smart guy who 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 um actually taught me a lot. Um, mm -hmm. uh, particularly about storytelling, actually. As I say, I'm a novelist, so his his understanding of storytelling is incredibly, yes. incredibly powerful. But also the idea that, you know, it's the fundamental question. How do we make meaning in the world? Why do we believe what we believe? You know, and that's an incredibly crucial question. Because he starts off, I was re-watching the maps of meaning, he was saying, well, he starts off, he started studying in the days of the Cold War, Russia versus America and just all these nuclear weapons pointed at each other. And just thinking, what's going on here? Why, why are these ideas, you know, worth destroying the world for? You know, it's a good question. You know, it's a very good question. Mm. Um, and uh, and that's really what he delves into, why we believe things with such passion, often without much reason. And ironically, 
that's what's brought him down. You know, a lot of yes, people yeah, that is without much reason. You know, there you go. Anyway. And what about Ian McGilchrist? I imagine that he might be of interest to you. Oh yeah, I think he's brilliant. Yeah, I mean, I yes, yeah, he is. He is. He is fantastic. I was, yeah. I, I was watching an um, a, in a conversation he had with a guy who I didn't know before, but that found fascinating, called Patrick Curry, who's written about enchantment, and um, you know, and enchantment, looking at enchantment and art is his is his recent book, where he's looking, I think, more at um, you know, paintings and but he's got a couple of ch- chapters on on literature apparently. But um, but that I think McGilchrist is is absolutely fascinating. That's yeah, that you know, really sort of speaks to me. I agree. And, uh, you know, there are wise men out there, but with the, who knows who they are? I know who they are, perhaps. Some of them. Who they are. But most people haven't got a clue who they are. When 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 asked who the most intelligent man in Britain was a few years ago, the wisest man in Britain, I think they came up with some, you know, it was Richard Dawkins or something, which is kind of hilarious. I wouldn't um, have minded if it was David Attenborough. No, but, you know, he's a scientist and, you know, he mm. he's nobody, including me, is not going to speak a word against David Attenborough. Um, but um, you know, he's not a he's 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 not somebody who, probably given his years of of biological training, there's only so many ways you can think about the world, you know. Even if you're David Attenborough, you know, and, and I think the idea of of thinking too far outside the box for someone who is trained in scientific rigor to such an extent is going to be a challenge but i don't know i don't know enough but i'm a big admirer of his of course um who wouldn't be um but yeah i mean clearly a wise man and uh, but there's but like you said ian mcgilchrist walk down the street mm. ask 100 mm. people ian yeah. McGilchrist is. no no one's got a clue yeah. you know I was, I was i think um you know for for someone of, well, it sounds as if for someone of your particular characteristics, and and I I I think I sort of share share a lot of it, that this idea of having a of having a sense of you know what is what is the way I'm going to make sense of life. I mean, I don't particularly like the idea of having a sort of like a narrative arc to my own experience in that, um, you know, I went through this dark night and that gave me these strengths and then I picked up my Excalibur sword. I I mean, I'm not particularly into that sort of narrative view of therapy, but I, I do like the, I do have a really strong searching questing for having um this idea of what you seem to have found um is by bringing together the alan watts and your own thinking and the, the gods and demons a view of well this is how i understand life and yeah. i think that that and i and i it seems to me that you know, partly that's coming through what and a lot of it through thinking, through meditation, through conversations with a Zen psychologist, through being in a calm enough place, assisted perhaps by medication, that, you know, that actually is the therapeutic tool. The therapeutic tool is like a is like the emergent quality of all of those things, which comes together in a kind of life philosophy. Or am I just being too, um, too um, florid about that? I don't know about Floyd, but I'm not quite sure what it is you're saying. I'm, I mean, uh, I, I, yeah, all those things have their role. Uh, will be one way of putting it. 
Um, but don't they all come together to give you this sense of a, uh, you know, of and this is how I, this is how I, yeah, this, I mean, this yeah. is my vision of life, as it were, and that that it's that itself is what's therapeutic. Well, at least I have a vision of life. You yeah. Know, what always bothered me is I didn't have a vision. Of yes. Life. You know, I didn't have any idea what was going on. You know, yeah, I didn't, nothing anybody said made any sense to me. None of the thinkers I read made any had any impact on me. And I, I read books on Buddhism and thought, well, this is a little rubbish. You know, I, I mean, because I was reading the wrong books. You know, because most people have got a complete misunderstanding of what Buddhism is, just as they've got a complete misunderstanding of what Zen is. You know, um, and it took me a long time to work out the philosophy behind these things, which usually get turned into religions of one kind or another. But to actually go to the root and understand, I'm not any great intellectual. You know, I, I need to find people like Watts who are capable of explaining to me, you know, these difficult ideas, you know. And 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 um, uh, 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 and I think that's a lifetime's job, is trying to track down, is trying to find the people who speak to your experience. And, you know, the people I have found you know, be it Joseph Campbell, be it Jung, be it Alan Watts, be it Dorothy Rowe, be it Jordan Peterson. They're people who speak to my experience. And so I read them and I think, yes, that's the way it is, but no one else is saying this, you know, and that is incredibly powerful. And you sort of build layer by layer a sense of, shall we say, realistic awareness Let's put it no more strongly than that. And so if you were to, um, if we were sort of considering that quite a lot of the people who might be listening to this might be um, psychologists, psychologists in training or people with an, with an interest in, in, in sort of therapy, is there any, is there anything that, you know, if you were speaking to psychologists that you might say, well, you know, here's, here's something that you can suggest to clients or here's something that you can, that, that might be useful for you to consider when dealing with clients out of all this experience of dealing with depression, dealing with ADHD and, and, forging an, a, a kind of independent path through it that's a really difficult question yes it was a really difficult question um, I threw it at you right at the end yeah I mean obviously I'm not a therapist and I'm not either I know I know a lot of therapists um and you know that's that's there's a huge amount of training involved in therapy to achieve just that, I suppose, professional training and so forth. Um, it's a, No, I, I want to stick with this because it's a really good question. I, 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 I wonder what I would say to a therapist. You know, all, all I can say is what, what I would say. I, I had several therapists before I, I settled on mine. Um, and what I would say I love about him uh, is that he tells me nothing. He never gives me advice. He never tells me what things are or should be. He just asks me interesting questions. That's all he does. You know, and it, that interesting question might be, well, why do you think that? You know, or it might be... Um, 
So why do you feel so bad about that? You know, and and uh, it, really nothing more than that. But that's very powerful. You know, and if I had anything to say to therapists, you be humble. Be very humble in front of a human being. Because human beings are complex creatures. And if you think you know what the hell is going on inside of another human being, check yourself. You know, you you are on the same journey to try and understand the most mysterious of things. People, you know, and um, don't get it into their head because you are a therapist. You know, you have any more than me as a novelist, you know, that I have some magnificent insight into what human beings are. They're a mystery, a deep impenetrable mystery uh which is does not mean you cannot help them you can and i i have having said i have i have sat down to dinner with half a dozen actually psychoanalysts not psychotherapists and interestingly and shockingly to me none of them thought they were doing any good and i said well what, why are you doing it then there was a kind of like slight you know, well, there was a long silence. It was like, you know, just like they did. It was like a joke amongst them that they, they, they were making all this money out of, but none of them really thought they were doing any good. You know, I just thought, well, stop fucking doing it then. You know, I mean, because you're just you're just stealing from people. And if you can't if you can't think you're helping people, why do it? You know, you've got to be thinking. And I'm I'm enormously grateful to my therapist. He helps me. And has helped me, and there's no doubt about it. You know, and if you if you're a therapist and, and and you and you don't think you're helping your clients, well, I would stop wasting both of your time. And time time being, I've already taken up more than an hour of your time. So unless there's anything else that you particularly wanted to say, we'll of course put um, contact details of uh, your Substack and how people can um, find your writing blog and um, and also links to the two articles that we've been we've been referencing. Um, but is there anything else that you particularly wanted to to say before we sign off? Um. Anything I want to say? Um, see, I feel I've got a great opportunity here, and uh, <laughs> and yes, I, I, I'm going to flop it because you know, if you haven't got anything out of what I've already said, um, then there's nothing I can really add to it. I, I don't think. Um, but. Uh, you know, make peace with uncertainty would be my motto. And death, of course. Okay. <laughs> Easy enough. <laughs> no problem there then. No problem well, there. Then. Tim Lott, thank you so much for being on Shrink Rep Radio. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye right. now. I hope you enjoyed hearing Tim Lott talk about how he has brought Zen teaching into his own vision, version or view of what life is all about. He discussed complex and profound ideas so eloquently. Well, he is a writer, so I guess he should be good with words. 
What I was struggling to express at the end was the sense I have that through the use of various different tools, medication and meditation, Zen and one's own thinking, questioning and analysing, something new arises or emerges. Just as through a collection of processes, chemical, biological, electrical, life emerges. What I'm saying is, the thing we seek, or perhaps I should say the thing I seek, a sense of satori or meaning or value, may arise only by engaging in not just therapy and not just reading, not just being in nature and not just yoga, but through the assimilation of a variety of practices. What I felt strongly was that so often we look for certainty and the one magic bullet. By accepting uncertainty and variety, maybe then what we always searched for can be found. I'll just read the end of the piece Tim wrote for the English newspaper The Guardian, which we'll link to in the show notes. It turns out that the main lesson I've learned is that not being sure is the essential condition of life. With that in mind, I'm looking forward to what happens next. Only I'm not. Because looking forward is pointless. So is looking back. Because every time you do so, the picture changes. The past is no more fixed than the future. What I think about my life is my life. Until, of course, I think about it next time. Hello, Dr. Dave. Uh, This is... uh... Morgan Adolfsson from Norway, clinical psychologist. I've been a long-time listener to both Wise Council and Shrink Rap Radio. Today, I'm so happy that I pressed the donate button. So from this day, I will regularly contribute to support your shows. And I really appreciate your work, Dave. So good luck. Thank you. Thank you, clinical psychologist Morgan Adolfsson. They're in Norway. I appreciate that over the years you found value in both my Shrink Wrap Radio and Wise Counsel podcasts and your commitment to becoming a regular donor. Thanks so much for your enthusiastic support and your encouragement of others out there to follow your sterling example. Once again, time to shrink wrap it up. Thanks. Again, to my London colleague, Isabella Clark, for bringing us her thoughtful discussion with UK writer Tim Lott, reflecting on Alan Watts' mental health and consciousness. Next week, my guest will be Dr. Robert Oaken, MD, a world-recognized expert on human rights for the mentally disabled. He's a clinical psychiatrist, professor emeritus at the University of California's San Francisco School of Medicine and a former commissioner of mental health in both Vermont and Massachusetts who spent two years on the streets meeting and photographing homeless individuals with mental illness. We'll be discussing the new edition of that groundbreaking book, Silent Voices. Until then, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourself, others, and our precious Earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave.
all the psychology you need to know and just enough to make you dangerous.